Hello, you're listening to Putting Up with Aaron Michael Marsh. Point. Yeah. Oh, did, I mean, what, did you watch it on Peacock? Is it on Peacock? No, it's on uh, YouTube. What's weird about I missed the old WWE Network. Everything was on it. Yeah. The old NWAs, the AWAs, every WCW, every ECW. And then when it went to Peacock, it was like they just put up all the big things and none of the small things. Yeah, well, there were some pretty wacky uh, things going on in like WCCW, World Class Championship yeah. Wrestling. I don't know who owns that. I don't know if WWE does, but like they had some characters that I could see Paramount going. Who owns Peacock? Yeah, Paramount? yeah, yeah. No, it's Universal... I could see them yeah. going, uh, yeah, I don't know about this. Because they had uh, this guy, Colonel Mustafa. He was This thing was, uh, he was basically a white, uh, not supremacist, but South Africa, apartheid. Like, yeah. he was, like, pro, like, anti-black. But so he was he, the bad guy, though. But he wouldn't battle black wrestlers. Like, oh. that was his character. Yeah. So I could see, like, some... Network exactly. Yeah, we're not gonna. That's true. And so much of wrestling, especially Vince McMahon wrestling, is racial. Well, even before him, like yeah, uh, when you look at well, just the character of Kamala, which I'm obsessed with. I mean, everyone knows that's like my guy. <laughs> what I wouldn't call him your guy as much as your target. I love him though. Yeah, like I really like. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Like the guy literally gave his legs to the business. And they should definitely build a ramp to the Hall of Fame to make sure he can get there. It's too late. He's dead. Wait, when did he die? He died 2020 of COVID. Oh. And my buddy Jordan, I, I forget the name of his travel blog on YouTube, but it's like really successful. He does these things where he'll go to a famous person's grave and do a whole story about their life. Yeah. He did one recently on Kamala. Um, and it's so sad. His grave is like on the tree line of just a highway cemetery. Like, no headstone. So we're going to pay for a headstone for him. Yeah. Uh, that's sweet. Uh, it's not that much. I mean, I, like, I did. It's more, more than anyone's given to him. Yeah. Oh, I, well, Chris Jericho paid for his funeral. Okay. Which yeah. Which is very yeah, cool. Yeah, that's huge. You think the WWE and well, I guess they own everything now, you think they would do it, but. Uh, you know, his character was just... I mean, you know they got the caskets. Oh, yeah, they could just take some from The Undertaker. Uh, but his character, look at his character was basically a savage. Yeah. Who was incapable of speaking English. Abdullah the Butcher, same thing. Uh, yeah. Junkyard Dog was a guy coming to the ring on all fours and a dog collar going... <laughs> like, what? That's... <laughs> that's but that was like... The that's what we celebrated. Because well, we, we were made in the most one-dimensional thing we could. But back then, you thought it was real. Like, you know, like, I'm 53, so I'm, what, 20 years older than you? or uh, 13. Thir so, but that's a, in the wrestling world, that's a big uh, age difference because... Oh, wrestling had evolved a ton in those yeah, 13 years. like, probably every five years, it evolved a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, like, when I was a kid, you, and I, it's a joke I do on stage, but... I really thought Kamala was from Uganda. You know, <laughs> I really thought Abdullah the Butcher was from uh, the Sudan. Yeah. It turns out his name's Larry, and he's from Windsor, Ontario. Uh, <laughs> exactly that. I mean, by the time I was watching, Bret Hart was already there. So, like, right. uh, Bret Hart was where it started to become a little more real. 
people yeah. using real names and it's being about like an actual beef to before it was about their characters have some kind of foundational difference because of oil. But like Jerry Lawler, he created the Kamala gimmick. You know, a lot of people don't know that. He He's a great business mind for yeah. wrestling. You know, he's not the goof we see today. Uh, but like, I remember when he called, I forget what wrestler he called on live TV, he called him a fag. Like, <laughs> On TV, like, yeah. and it was just like, and Ric Flair on, is uh, it Ricky Morton? He pulls out a training bra, basically calling Ricky Morton a pedophile. So what, you know, he's probably dipping into the underage girl thing. Get him into roast battle. Uh, yeah, here's a training bra for your next girlfriend, Ricky. Like, what? Like, that's insane. That's true. Wait, weren't you also friends with uh, with that guy up there, Lemmy? Yes, it. Uh, Lemmy, I was. Um, Dating Motorhead's co-manager. Uh, oh, which I think is, I've met her. Yes, her name. Well, I was, her name's Shelly B. Uh, well, uh, she's known in the business as that. Uh, she co-manages with a guy by the name of Todd Singerman. They still manage Motorhead to this day. And you think, well, Lemmy's dead. Uh, it's got to just be more like an estate, like Elvis. Yeah, yeah, where they're just dealing with everything that it is the the logos and the t-shirts. Oh and my all god, those things. they still make. Uh, I don't know how much they make, but they make a lot of money on a t-shirt. Everyone wants a Motorhead t-shirt. Yeah. Like even... Uh, even if you don't know the band, it's a 20 year cool old. shirt. Yeah. Like uh, it's the logo, and uh, I just bought three more myself uh, on uh, imotorhead.com. <laughs> Shelly did not pay me to say that, because it's just cool. Um, it is cool. I um I met him. I was delivering groceries out here, and the two big people that we would deliver groceries to regularly, we went to Lemmy's house every day. On Harrod. Uh, well, he had two. Oh, I didn't know the second one. Well, the fun one is about, so Harrods where he had all the paraphernalia right. on the walls. And the first day I ever delivered to him, it was his girlfriend answered the door. Black girl? Mm-hmm. Cheryl. Yeah, and she looked like a stripper, and but there's all this Nazi paraphernalia. And so I gave her like the weirdest side eye. You oh, know, right. like I was like, what is going Jewish? on here? No. Okay. No, it was just, I didn't, I don't know how those two connect. Right. And then in the background, just hear, like oh, like, like it's almost like those Sharon Ozzy Osbourne right. sort of vibes, where like this old man kind of walks across. He's got long hair, and it's like, oh, that's fucking Lemmy. Like I know exactly what's going on here now. Yeah, well, he loved. Uh, like I guess you'd say my thing with girls is, like I said, like bustier girls or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lemmy loved black women. Yeah, I mean, that was his thing. So. Oh, for sure. And then he like spotted like me and was like. Are you new? Have you ever delivered here before? And I was like, no. And he's like, one second. And he like went off to his room and then came back and gave me a Motorhead CD. He would give everyone when they were new a Motorhead CD. Oh, yeah. I mean, when he passed away, I had to help clean his apartment, the one on Harrod. Yeah. Which was basically his supply you know, uh, warehouse. And uh, Shelly was like, take whatever shirts you want. Yeah. Because he had a... I hear Slash is the same way. Literally hundreds of T-shirts, all neatly mm-hmm. folded. So I took a few. Like that's uh, funny. They were because they were cut. Like let me, you know, uh, the neck was cut, the sleeves were cut. Yeah. And uh, I would never sell them. Like I see, you see what vintage shirts go for on eBay, and especially if they're worn by the person. Uh, but I had to wash a metal them a god. lot. Oh my god! I mean, it, wait, it, did they smell like Rainbow Room? They smelled. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Like, I had to take Lemmy to my dentist several times, uh, and my dentist should give me free service for the next 10 lifetimes, because Lemmy had done so much speed, or whatever uh, he did, which is probably everything, 
that his uh, bridge would never hold. So mm. it's constantly falling out, and they had to make new bridges a uh. lot. And, uh, you know, so Dr. Schneider in Westwood owes me a lot. The house around the corner, I'll give that little bit of information, was where he lived with his son. He had a room okay. in each, so one had his son, one had his girlfriend. Right, because he bought that condo. Uh, I, th- I think the management was like, hey, dude, you got to buy some real estate or something because mm-hmm. you really have no investments and, like, I think they probably sensed when he was uh, he was frail for a very long time, but yeah. I, I think they it's kind of like with my parents. We knew eventually like something bad was going to happen, uh, so they bought that as an investment, which I would assume. I think his son lives in London or the UK, but I, I would assume they still have it just as an investment. Probably, I only saw his son twice, so his son would be down there, and it was mostly it looked like even though his son wasn't a teenager. It was very much set up like a teenager's space right. where there's like there's a TV, there's a video game console, and there's a pile of video games. Oh, he let me love video games at the Harrod House. Uh, I had to go over there many times, usually to see if he was still alive. You know, yeah, because I lived, you know, I live on Larrabee. I don't mm-hmm. know why I'm giving my street. Uh, I gave my phone number once out on a podcast, and people started <laughs> calling me. Uh, I was like, no one's going to call me. Like, it just had to. Yeah, so if you guys want to just knock on every door down Larrabee, you'll eventually get to Earth. I'm on the 800 block. You can figure it out for yourself. Uh, so, because they, I think Todd lives somewhere in like uh, Pacoima or somewhere, and, and Shelly lives in the valley. So I, they would be, hey, we haven't heard from Lemmy in a few days. Can you go check on him? And I was like, I don't want to be the one who finds him dead. Uh, and every single time he was with Cheryl by the pool and his. Uh, Daisy Duke, blue jean shorts, mm-hmm. and he would just look up and go, I'm okay, Earl. And then uh, one time they sent me to get his mail, and I'm like, where's the key? Go, go in his house, in the top dresser drawer. And uh, so I go to his house, I pull down the dresser drawer, hundreds of Polaroids fall out. And I, I just, it, it was just basically him getting blown by strippers or Cheryl or whoever. Mm-hmm. So I start picking them up and I start looking at the pictures and I look at the carpet and then I look at where I'm standing and I look at the carpet and the pictures <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm st-. And I start like, I froze. Like my, I literally, I don't know what that's called, but I, I literally couldn't move. I fear uh, paralyzed by fear. And I like, I'm looking and I'm like, Oh, there's a camera over there. There's a camera over there. There's a camera over there. Mm-hmm. I'm standing in the same spot, and this is so gross. Like, uh, but he was a great dude. Like, he was always very friendly, and he was very, always nice to me. I saw yeah. him like two weeks before he passed. Yeah, boy. Yeah. And uh, there was a sense that he was going to leave soon. Like, there was a doctor actually in his room that day. I mean, and Cheryl was very much like just like it's a bad day here, and I was, was like, I could tell, and like, and then we didn't, we stopped getting the calls because it was right. daily. We would deliver groceries there daily, like per meal. We would deliver whatever they needed. And then it was like it stopped, and then I was like, oh, that's not good. Well, I saw him at the, the famous gas station on the Sunset in San Vicente, yeah. which was like his supermarket for him. And I saw him probably about two weeks before he died. And, oh, boy, it was just like a walking skeleton. And he looked at me like he knew me. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't even say hello to him. I'm like, I don't want to see this, Lemmy. So yeah. then, but then I had to be the usher at his funeral. Yeah, I knew that. Because uh, me and Shelly had broken up by then and uh wasn't the best of breakups. But, you know, I mean, what breakup is good. Yeah. But she uh, she was managing the funeral with Wendy Dio. 
and they're like, we we need someone who's going to know who all these guys are. We're we're going to be too busy. What about your boy ex boyfriend? Yeah. Uh, and so I was the usher at Lenny's funeral, and it was like I had to deal with so much drama because, like Gene Simmons, he wanted to be in the front row, and he was sat. I'll never forget in the seventh row, you know, which was still very close. But sure enough, he ends up in the front row. Uh, Bob Kulik, who was uh, he was almost in Kiss. His which his is, brother was his brother got the gig, but Bob. Um, Bob Bruce is one of my favorite guitar players. Oh, Bruce is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Bob was kind of a bitter dude because he was basically in Kiss, and then Ace walked in and got it. <laughs> like, they were going over with Bob, hey, this is how we do the makeup. You're going to need a wig. And then Ace walked It's kind of an urban legend, but according to Ace, he walked in with one different sneaker on each foot, walked right in the middle of them talking to Bob Kulik and plugged in. And he says, Gene and Paul looked up and said, that's our guy. So Bob was a little like, and I get it. Who wouldn't be better? Yeah. Uh, also at the same time, when that band becomes such a phenomenon. And you're like. And that guy is one of the key ingredients. Ace Frehley's a guitar god. You can't look at it like, oh, I could have been that guitar god. But All, he, every piece connected so well. But here's the crazy thing is when Ace started drinking and partying too much, they would call Bob in to play on the records. But, but they couldn't tell anybody because you had to keep up the illusion that it was Ace. Yeah. So that had to drive him nuts. That's true. Uh, so Bob would not get out of Slash's seat. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm trying to be respectful. I'm like, hey, man, um, Mr. Kulik, uh, your seat's a couple back. He's like, I'm not moving. I'm like, well, this is Slash's seat. And Slash is right there. And Slash has this gigantic bodyguard mm. who I had luckily known from Equinox. So bodyguards being like smoothing it over i'm like listen if i have to get shelly and shelly's a pit bull when she has to be yeah. uh it's like we go get fucking shelly and so I, hey shelly uh bob kulik won't get the a slash a seat and there's like gridlock on the aisle <laughs> and shelly like just goes bob get out of the slash a seat and he got up in two seconds so, <laughs> <laughs> uh so that was funny uh you know it was a beautiful funeral like triple h yeah that, i've watched it on youtube yeah it the YouTube video doesn't cover how actually beautiful it was. Triple H told this amazing story, and Dave Grohl, uh, probably the coolest thing I've ever done in my life was uh, after the funeral, um, only a select few were allowed to go to Lemmy's final resting site. And how it's set up, and I know there's no cameras here, but like Lemmy's uh, gravesite is there on the left let's say and dio's is yeah, on the right Dio, i've been there oh okay so it's mm -hmm. dio's grave uh you can see them from each other yeah yeah they're looking at each other basically and, and dio's gravesite or gravestone is like the biggest grave like display i've ever seen in my life for those that i mean they can't see us there's like these two vases on either side of dio's grave yeah. and they're like four feet tall and they must weigh 600 pounds each and they have the like the metal horns on each of them engraved in them. And they had to get special permission because I think it's uh, it's not necessarily a Catholic cemetery, but it, it's pretty much. Uh, so I think some of the people are like, yeah, we're not cool with the devil horns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they're like, what's Dio? Like, he invented it. Or, uh, and then so we're all, you know, crying and whatnot and saying goodbye to Lemmy. And then this guy puts his hand on my shoulder who's crying incontrollably. And I look mm -hmm. behind me and it was Dave Grohl. Yeah. Because he loved Lemmy. Like, oh, yeah. No, like this seems like when I go to his interviews. Yeah. It's about Lemmy. Yeah. It's about Kurt. It's about Richard, um, little Richard. 
He's yeah, obsessed was, with Little Richard. I mean, little. I was thinking about Little Richard the other day, and you think what that guy had to go through in the 50s and 60s, not just being black, which in and of itself was horrible, yeah. and that, but being gay. Yeah. Like, oh, in that time period, there's like nowhere you, safe. Yeah, I mean, you were you would get killed if you were black. But a gay black, like, just, like, kids today don't understand. Like, if you say you're gay now, it's like, okay, great. Trans now. It's, trans is, like, the new I'm gay. Yeah. Uh, so, but back then, like. Which you're targeted for jokes out here for that. But back then, you're targeted for attacks, murder. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the different bathrooms and, like, uh buses and, and and it was just like, i don't think because well, i was born right after that time yeah. frame late 60s so i didn't really catch most of that we had moved on to like the vietnam war and, and stuff like yeah. that but my god it, it's pretty i don't think he's fully told the story of how horrifying it was to be on the road by himself as a gay black man yet i, I mean i i can't imagine uh and you know it's like i had a friend of mine who um he was the first black uh, player in the NHL, American-born. Mm. And uh, I can imagine, and he did it in the early 80s, mid-80s. And what he had to go through was similar to what Little Richard went through because he was beating up, he was the best fighter in the league. He, no yeah. one could beat him. But he was beating up white players. You, you can only imagine what how hard it was for him to, like, it's funny. My mind went straight to George LaRock, but this was pre-George LaRock. This is a guy by the name of Al James okay. uh, who uh, played on the – Willie O'Ree is the first black player to play in the NHL. Val is the first American-born, mm-hmm. um, and he was a fighter, and he was uh, he was the best. He was like the Bob Probert before Probert, and uh, I, he had a very tough uh, racial uh, – you know, you're breaking into a white sport at the time, yeah, and, and you're beating up the white players like it's pretty brutal what he had to go through yeah i couldn't imagine i don't know how he got out of all those cities well he was so big i don't think anyone was going to try and fight him like in terms of like a fan or a wacky uh you know you see the i know we're going all over the place you see the shootings today like but i think back then it was more hand-to-hand combat like if you didn't like but have you seen a boxer in public Uh, a black boxer just any boxer but sure I mean, I sat next to Leon Spinks once uh, <laughs> at a boxing event. Uh, it was at Staples Center, Klitschko and Lennox Lewis. And I had really good seats. I forget who gave them to me. I certainly didn't buy them. And we're basically in the 50-yard line for this boxing match. And Leon Spinks, like, staggers over to me. And I'm such a dick. He looks at me and goes, hey, man, what arena are we in? And I was like, he's got to be punking me yeah. and then i looked in his eyes i could tell he was not i'm like oh this is the forum bro we're in englewood <laughs> and he's like oh thanks man I'm like, that's funny like because i saw manny pacquiao when i saw zootopia i went to see zootopia okay. and he was watching zootopia as well but he had like eight bodyguards and so when i saw that he had eight bodyguards i was like why would manny pacquiao have eight bodyguards i said that out loud you know because it was right. weird it was like that's a guy that can beat anybody well, I think it's probably because there's so much money lost and won on boxing fights and UFC fights, sporting events in general, that they probably, you know, gamblers. I could see a gambler going, hey, this guy cost me fucking 100 oh, grand. Oh, that could very well be. Uh, but one of the bodyguards was like, because idiots want their shot to see where they stack up against somebody like him. 
Oh yeah, I mean, and uh, you're like, it never occurred to me that anyone is that foolish. Oh yeah, I mean, I would never. Uh, you know, I know some hockey tough guys, and you would not want to try no. these guys. No, there's very few people where I go. You know, I think I could stack up against this person, but it's but that's not the way I, I think. That's not the way I want to alpha anything. I mean, I haven't been into a, a public fight. If you take away my hockey fights, I don't think I've ever been in a like a street fight ever. I, I so I can't imagine looking at uh, like I saw the Diaz brothers. They yeah. come to the store, and if you see them like physically, you're not like overwhelmed by them because they have like. Uh, triathlon bodies i mean sure. they're definitely in shape but you're not you look at him and go this guy's in the ufc i could probably take him he could knock me out in two seconds that probably oh, wouldn't yeah. even take two seconds uh but if you saw him not knowing what he did you, you go, i could take this guy he'd, he'd kill you and oh it's like eddie bravo in yeah. a shirt you go oh you know what i think eddie bravo uh if he was in a fight good luck eddie bravo he's not a big guy right but also, if you know that he's this incredible fighter, you're like, oh, no, no. Whatever teeth you have left is just by the grace of this man. I mean, I once got into a hockey fight with a guy probably about your size. How mm -hmm. tall are you? 5'3". So I'm 6'1", yeah. whatever I am. And uh, I, I was running around a bit in this game. <laughs> and I was the biggest player out there. So I wasn't too scared of anyone. And so... A guy that I'm almost a foot taller than, he's like, hey, cool down. I'm like, F you, buddy. And unbeknownst to me, this guy was a sheriff. He pushed my left shoulder hard enough where he spun me around. Nice. And he choked me out. Oh, yeah. And when I woke up, he had my glasses in, my, in his hand. And these are not for show glasses. <laughs> I need them. Because my vision is so bad, they look like Hanson Brother glasses. Yeah, if you like Buddy Holly, Elvis Costello, mm -hmm. just to give you a visual, the Hanson Brothers. If you're old enough to remember them from Slapshot, and I just remember waking up, kind of groggy. Oh, dude, those are six hundred dollar glasses. Please don't do anything to them. I'm sorry. He's like, cool down, bro. I'm like, you got it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about the comedy store. Please do. Oh, because yes. when I think of you, I think of the comedy store, and vice versa. In a way that, like, when I first showed up in town 11 years ago and started hanging out at the comedy store there was different kinds of people that were hanging out there there's like four or five different sects of people yes. but there are and you're like these are the ones to be avoided these are the ones that are kind of the good guys that are a part of comedy these are ones that you see everywhere so they just also are here these are people you only see here but you were of a very special brand to me it reminds me of gary shandling where there's like people who everybody in the scene is like, this person needs their fair shot. They need their yes. fair due. They weren't getting it. And eventually broke the building down to be like, you have to wear down Tommy Morris. I mean, I had or to Gary wait. had to do the same with uh, Mitzi to be yeah. like, no, no, I guess we have to accept everyone else accepts them. I'm the only one that's in the way. I mean, uh, I, I first went up there in 2000 and yeah. I, I've told this story a thousand times, but uh, to your new fans, don't know who I am, which I'm assuming is most of them. Uh, I saw Brody Stevens hosting the mic. I can't do a good Brody impression, so I'll just tell the story. Mm -hmm. And there's this kid from La Jolla. He's bombing, which is no... Everyone bombed in 2000 at the store at Potluck. It was brutal. When I showed up in 2010, it wasn't there wasn't the resurgence yet. And yeah, right. so it was a black hole. It was abysmal to do it. And in 2000, it was even worse. Yeah. Uh, 
it actually got better from 2000 to 2010. But uh, so Brody gets on the mic after and it's like, where are you from, kid? And this kid knew he had not done well. Mm-hmm. And everyone's looking at him. And the kid meekly said, La Jolla. And Brody was like, well, that drive just got a lot longer. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I don't. I think I walked out. I'm like, oh, this isn't for me. So, uh, so I had done open mics for, for probably 10 years. And then I started slowly dipping my toes in at the store. And then I think about 2013, Tommy got fired. And I had just, you know, for the, probably the first and maybe only time in my life, I was lucky that Adam Egott had seen me at two, in 2011 at the Tempe Improv with nice. Rob Schneider All right. and Jeff Richards. And I I wasn't killing, but as the host, you've opened up for big comics, you know, Jeff yeah. Dye, and, and you know it's tough. And I've done it at the Tempe Improv. So you know that's a big, big venue, and, you know, uh, I'm sure Jeff sells it out. Schneider did. Uh, and they're there to see Jeff or Rob. Of course. Um, so I... I wasn't killing, but I was doing very good uh, for the host that nobody knew. So Adam, when he got hired, said, you're going to be my first showcase because everyone's going up to me and going, hey, you got to pass Earl. Mm-hmm. He's been up here forever. Delia, like prime Delia, like at his zenith of popularity, was like, hey, you got to pass Earl, you know, Brian Scalaro. And uh, so there was a lot of pressure on me from the standpoint of, you know, Adam, I think, was like me and like you. When you're told you have to do something, you don't want to do it. Yeah. Don't tell me who I have to pass. Uh, he's like, I'm going to showcase you, but if you don't do well, I'm not going to pass you just because mm-hmm. we're friends. And uh, so I probably had the best, not that a six-minute set is a set, but it was maybe the perfect showcase set um, from the standpoint of everyone in the Everyone came to see me that night. Like, everyone. <laughs> Every big-name comic in the city. Russell Peters went. Delia. Watched a dude do comedy like that just didn't happen <laughs> back then. Yeah, uh, and like the first joke d- got some chuckles. Second joke more, and it just built until the last joke like borderline killed. And uh, you know, I remember the next day Moses, who later gave me my shot with roast battle. And in terms of that, uh, he's like, "Hey, you can start calling him for spots now." And I literally ran around my. It was a Friday morning. I ran around my condo in my underwear crying because it was just like so uh it was literally like rocky just being a bar fighter and then apollo creed calls you up and yeah you got it and said hey and then hinchcliffe said something i'll I'll give him this he says something uh i'm like hey man I'll, i'll just be happy for a wednesday night spot at one in the morning and and his delivery which is similar to mine so i'll try and do an impression well, that won't last for long. Like, so you'll want more than that. Yeah. And he was right. After about a month of Wednesday night spots at one, I'm like, hey, I think I'm ready for two spots a week. And then you want, you get two, you get one, three. And so, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing, it, not a day goes by where I don't either walk by with my dog or I go up there for a spot and I see my name on the front of the building. It, it still gives me, uh, not necessarily chills, but. Uh, oh, I get it. That would be a huge moment for me. And I don't even. I don't even worship the store. I mean, I worship it now because uh, for some reason the uh, the laugh, you know, the other clubs they give me such random spots in the store. I get one to two a week, and um, I always tell people like you who who don't worship it, or or people who do worship it, uh, it's what you make of it. Yeah, you know, there's uh, people who've been past there for as long as me or longer who have nothing going on. 
So it's not a guarantee. I mean, I wouldn't say I have like a ton of things going on, but you know, it's like the people who got roast battle and, and did that. Uh, it's what you make of it. Like there's people who've done roast battle from day one who literally have nothing to show for it. For sure. And there's people like Pat Barker or, or me who, who got on cartoons and TV shows. Uh, so anything is what you make of it. Oh, I think that exactly with those spots. Like you, especially like those Wednesday 1 a.m. spots that you were talking about. When I first moved to town, I was watching those spots because, you know, you hope to get past and then you hope yeah. you know that that's where they start you. Oh. And so at that time, I was watching Fahim Anwar at 1 a.m. and yeah. Adam Ray at 1 a.m., which, of course, they're getting the eight, nine, ten spots now, the great ones. Right. But you also watched where Adam Ray developed so much at that 1 a.m. spot where it was like, oh, there was maybe two people and they yeah. definitely want to go home and they're debating it. And he's got to keep them there with all of his might. Oh, it's tough. Like, I think about that every time I do a stupid bar show and people are just like, oh, whatever, I'll just do things. You're like, no, no, no. But if you put your challenge to yourself to keep those people focused, you can really develop no matter what the well, space Well, that's what is. I did. I mean, the bar shows uh, really developed my thick skin. Um, whereas like the other night at the store, uh, you know, Emily puts me on last a lot in the main room which is actually an honor. It's the Brody spot. It's the Brody spot. It's before they called it the Brody spot. It was the Kinnison uh, spot, Kinnison spot mm -hmm. the Holtzman spot. And that's her saying, I trust you enough to keep the crowd. Yeah. But it's a very tough spot because they've seen every big name comic. They've heard every. And they know there's not a big name comic coming yeah. now. Yeah. No <laughs> big name comics going on at 12. Uh, but. I've always... And it's open-ended. That's the other fantastic part about it, is you are just there until you're done. Yeah. And so it'll be at 15 minutes, be at 45, be in an hour. But I think they want you to do at least a half hour because people are still drinking. Correct, yeah. So it's pressure because there's no one going on after you. So there's no, like, oh, I can just I can duck out and give someone else this baton. And uh, I've always believed you never know who's in the room. That's I say the same thing. Even in a bar show. I, I, there might be a producer in here, probably not likely, but, you know, maybe they just got off set and they went into this shithole bar. And uh, the other night I'm at the store, it's pretty packed. I would say about 85% full still in the main room. So it's probably at least 300 people. And I'm, I'm going to give them the best show I can. And I, I'm not going to say I killed because I rarely kill, but I was in the zone. And, mm -hmm. and they were with me from joke one to the end. And this older guy comes up to me and says, hey, you're really funny. Keep in touch. And I just don't know. And, and he just walked off. And everyone was like, do you know who that was? I'm like, no. I just thought there was an older dude. He's like, that's David Letterman's producer, Robert Morton, who, like, he was prime yeah. Letterman producer. Yeah. Like, And, you know, maybe something comes of it, maybe nothing. But, like, if I just fucked around and, like, was trying to pick up pussy in the crowd, which you can do at the store. Like, there's always hot chicks in the crowd. Or I just gave it a half-ass effort. He would have walked out of there going, that guy sucks. So he wouldn't have even said that. He would have thought about whoever was before you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's there's not even like the, which, that guy sucks. It was, you know, who was yeah. good. Skip right over yeah, your which memory. Was I think uh, if memory serves me that night, it was Ron Taylor who kills. Mm -hmm. I love Ron um, Taylor. And uh, I think Stephen Fury was on the lineup too. So it's like they're killers, man. Mm -hmm. um, so, which is another thing at the story. People give you uh, me shit sometimes. Or are you going on last, man? You're 22 years in. But like, you have to be a really good comic to follow Stephen Fury, Ron Taylor. Um, the other night I had to follow Ryan Sickler. 
Yeah. Uh, and Liz Traeger, who who was, I mean, murder row. And then yeah. so, like, it's going on last. You're actually probably one of the stronger comics on the show. For sure. Because well, you have to be the one that holds them there. Yeah. You're not the most well-known comic. Obviously, you'd be going on earlier. But, like, when you got a main room lineup or OR lineup, you have uh, Jeselnik, um, you know, Santino, uh, Rick Ingram. Which those are in the first four or five. The last four, the first four or five, it's easy to keep them in because right. they just sat there. Yeah. The last four or five. I mean, I've got a little bit of cheat room with me because they could say, okay, I'm a fan of the jellies, the cartoon I'm on. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people say that, but, oh, I, this guy's in cartoons. We'll give him a shot. Or I kind of remember him on I'm Dying up here. Yeah, but let's also be honest. They give you about 30 seconds to a minute. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah like the, the I'll give this guy a shot is not a long time to do it. And because we're talking about this spot, I want to just plug Brody's special. Yes. Which, if you have Amazon uh, Prime, Brody recorded himself doing the Brody spot. And it was amazing. At the time that he was doing it, I was like, what is he doing? He's Because he didn't announce he was doing a special. He just, it was like one day he set up a camera and he went around the store and was like telling people to come in and check it out. And this is all on the special. And then he does the, his regular spot that he does open-ended at the end of the thing. And there are people that will get up and leave during oh, certain yeah. parts of it. And you get to actually witness and experience what it was like to watch Brody. There is no difference between what it was like when we would see him on a regular Wednesday versus when he taped. And I think it's a great time capsule. Well, that's what I want to do for my special. It, it, you know, after Roast Battle, I think after I beat Jimmy Carr, the head of Comedy Central came up to me. Like, there's no one above this guy <laughs> other yeah. than the ceiling. And uh, he's like, yeah, you're really funny, dude. You, you have an idea for a special? I'm like, I was primed for this question. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm kind of known in L.A. as the late night guy and, you know, going on when it's a dead room. And, like, I want to go on. I want the store to have a regular lineup. Mm -hmm. No one's being filmed. I want it to be a very long show, like three-hour main room show. And then I walk out and my special starts. And, like, 20 people get up and leave as soon as they even hit the stage. Like, they're just tired. And then, like, little by little, every five minutes, five people get up and leave. And by the end of the special, there's, like, three people in the crowd. And the guy just tilts his head and goes, yeah, I don't think our crowd's that smart. <laughs> but, like, I think that would be so funny. And I always say this to the crowd. Like, you guys would watch that special because... Like, and I'm not putting myself on these comics levels, but Chappelle's uh, special, it's at a packed arena, Rogan arena, Jimmy Carr arena, uh, Eliza, the uh, packed comedy club. So, you know, you're flipping through all these specials and then you flip on mine and you're like, Jesus, I think I was at this show. Like, <laughs> I think I see my head. Like, yeah, that, I think I'm leaving. Uh, yeah, I think that was me who got up and left. Like, that would be so funny, and to me anyway, and so, like, I think young kids would like that because oh, this old dude's insane. So hopefully that happens, but it's going to be a tough sell to to have a network buy into that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I get that. You would have to. It's like when Dice was at his peak, right? And he was doing Madison Square Garden, and then recorded his album at the comedy club down the street after Madison Square Garden, and people are coughing. You can hear it. That's funny to me. It's like. great. No, it's great, and absolutely, it holds up better than anything else that he ever did. But at the time, it seemed like a like a suicide album for him to put out there. Yeah, I mean, you have to be at that level, and, and I think people kind of forget how big he was. Yeah, well, when he released that, it was unforgettable. He was still at that level. Oh, he was, and much more so than Dane Cook or, you know, Dalia, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, Dice did it with no social media. Like, there was no MySpace, Facebook, 
obviously Instagram yeah. talk. He did it just on word of mouth. Yeah, and which, he did it bigger than Steve Martin did. Yeah. So even like when we like look at it, there was a time period where he was on Mount Rushmore of comedy. Oh, 100%. And he doesn't get credit for his joke writing, you know, because you just, you know, he's like an 80s metal band, like, say, Poison, mm -hmm. where you look at Poison and go, okay, these guys are good looking guys, but their musicianship is a little dodgy. C.C. DeVille is a classically trained guitar player. He's a great guitar like, player. He could play uh, with, with most musicians and, and hold his own, but you don't see that because he's got the, the pink guitar and the, the wacky platinum blonde hair but you know dice you see in the leather jackets and the cigarette to the head mm -hmm. uh he's a very very good joke writer like uh, you know carrot top is almost similar from the standpoint of you see the props and all that you know mm -hmm. like this guy sucks but those prop jokes are so well written you know like when he pulls out the tennis racket with the tampon strings he's like hey everyone it's the venus williams tennis racket like because it looks like her hair like yeah that's funny man that that took some sitting down and going what could i do with this tennis racket i don't think my generation dislikes carrot top we don't make fun of him at all there's a reverence to it because he is the last prop guy yeah because he was so good at it everything else just moved away it would be like if there was a band like the beatles and they were so good that everyone stopped playing rock music. I mean, the only other prop comic I grew up with and even recognized was, uh, and fans of Scarface will know this guy, Angel Salazar, who was, you know, you had Al Pacino, you had Stephen Bauer, who's like really super good looking yeah. best friend. And then you had the little guy, Chi Chi, who had the fedora on. And he was a great comic. He was a huge comic in the 80s. But he did the, he, he was the first comic I saw in the main room. He would hmm. bring out a like a gigantic chest of like it looked just like your chest right there, yeah. and he would just whip out. I don't even because th I think he might have done some cocaine in his day in the eighties. He would just p put his hand in there, pull out something, and have a joke about it. And uh, but other than Angel, uh, I mean Gallagher. Uh, uh, but I look at I mean Carrot Top like had hundreds of props. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw Gallagher at the Wiltern. It I didn't find it funny, but like he's obviously a legend. Gallagher's original specials influenced me a lot because I watched him a lot. Right. But he's kind of grown out of what that is. It's watching and it'd be like buying a Dave Matthews album now. You're like, no, yeah. he's kind of past what he was doing. Um, one last thing I want to ask you before we'll get you out Damn, of here. Damn, you really do. I like this. See, I try and extend my podcast by just talking more slowly and shit. I'm... <laughs> In asking questions, I, yeah. I, I like how you like it. This is quick. I like it. Yeah, I like it because I need it to be in my attention span. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about Piper. Yes. Because you were buddies with him. Yeah. One of the big legends of my life. Oh, for sure. Now, did you meet him because he was coming into comedy or did you help him come into comedy? Uh, Steve Simone helped him. He was Steve is the sole reason Roddy came up to the comedy store. Uh, I would meet him when he would pull in. I was telling some of this the other day, and in his Richard Gere American Gigolo type Mercedes, mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever seen that movie, you get the reference. He'd pull up to the lot, and you'd like no one's allowed to park in the lot unless you're paid regular. So the few people who do, like like when Brendan Shaw pulls up, it's like ah, I mean people let him pull, park there because he kick all our asses, but like. You know, behind his back, we're like, ah, you shouldn't really be parking here, dude. Uh, but when that's Pike, true, and I've seen a couple celebrities get away with it. Dane Cook, you know, in fairness to Dane, he was performing on like one of Monarch's shows, but it was like, ah, dude, you're not. Even though he's a huge comic, it's like that's what I love about the store. It's very like we don't care who you are if you're not past up here. You're not supposed to be in this lot. It sounds stupid to most, like Earl, it's a parking lot. 
but it's it's the it's po- it's the big perk. There's two big perks you get from being passed outside of the spots. No. Absolutely, and your name on the building. Those are huge, but you get the the parking. Yeah, and then you get the comfy seats in the back. Yeah, you get to sit in the bucket <laughs> seats. Like they kick people out, and I feel bad sometimes because I think some people just sit there because they think, oh, these these look like cool seats. Just, oh know. yeah, and they're open. You're like, yeah, that's because yeah. the other people aren't sitting in them, but they're for other people. And then a door guy will say, hey, you gotta leave. These are for the comics only. And they're like, but there's no one here. Uh, but uh, Piper would go on stage, and uh, he wasn't the funniest dude because he would run out of a. He didn't really do stand-up jokes. I mean, Steve might have given him a few things, like, hey, joke about this. And then he'd kind of lose his focus, and then everyone in the back would start yelling questions. Mm. But no one had the balls to say the first question. So I would, like, raise my hand and with my cell phone light mm. so he could see me. I'd, be, uh, I'd make up some phony name, like, uh, yeah, Earl Swanson from the Stanford uh, Times. Uh, I have a question for you, Mr. Piper. Uh, how big was uh, Mark Henry Schitt's? And... <laughs> And the, it get the room going, and then yeah. he would have a Mark Henry story. Yeah. So it would help him, like, get focused. And then, uh, hey, uh, was Hillbilly Jim, was he really from the country, or was he from, like, a big city? And, like, he would have a Hillbilly Jim story. And, and of course, I would do a Kamala joke. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Roddy, was uh, Abdullah the Butcher really from the Sudan? Or is his name really Larry? Uh, and he'd have a – he had a great story about one time uh, – just to show you how his mind worked, that him and Abdullah were in a tag team match. Match starts. Abdullah's nowhere to be found. So Roddy says to the other two guys, I think it was like the Road Warriors or something, hey, I think he's in the parking lot in the in the van eating donuts. Let's go out there and take the match out there. And so they go. I, they must have had a camera guy follow them. And sure enough, they open up the van, and Abdullah the Butcher's literally just like <laughs> eating Krispy Kreme donuts. And uh, so they had to drag him back to the ring. Uh, so he he was great. And then how I got on his podcast was I think I had done a joke. I was really angry about how the WWE treated Sting. You know, they really effed him over. Yeah, they uh, buried him. I mean, they buried him. Everyone should win their first match when you make the jump because it builds your character. Mm-hmm. And it's better business. Like every kid in that arena uh, would the next day have wanted a Sting t shirt, a mask, gloves, a, the, the trench coat. I have all, by the way. Uh, a doll, uh, a makeup kit uh, if Sting beat Triple H. But instead, he jobbed a Triple H. 20 minutes later at WrestleMania, I think 32. Triple H is in a suit, already in another angle with The Rock and Ronda mm-hmm. Rousey, and uh, Sting's probably in the back on a uh, oxygen tank. Uh, so you know, and then he, they didn't really do much with him after that. Um, so Roddy, came no, they up. heard him, and then that was it. Oh, they, I think the next night he was in an off-air segment on Monday Night Raw to plug the network with Bo Dallas. Like, who might be the most insignificant wrestler in the history of wrestling. Uh, but he's from a famous family. Yes. So the, respect. Uh, he's Bray Wyatt's brother. Bray right? Wyatt's brother, and so their dad's IRS. Mike Rotunda, who I literally thought when I was a kid worked for the IRS. <laughs> I thought the IRS sent this guy to collect taxes from the, the wrestlers who weren't good with their money. I mean, that's how crazy I was into it. Um, so I think I'd done a 15 minute set about how. Uh, angry i was about that and roddy was like hey why don't you come on the podcast and talk about it you know because i could tell he was sick of being a bad guy yeah because i told him i looked at him as dude i used to hate you and he looked at me like why and i could see him literally welling up and uh, because he was in his late 50s at the time 
He's like, oh, I just I thought you were an asshole. And he's like, oh, that's just a character, dude. So then I came on his podcast and literally spoke for about three hours about Sting getting jobbed out. And his manager's like, do you want to co-host? Because Roddy sometimes loses focus. And, like, Roddy would be telling a great story about uh, Nikita Koloff, another guy. I thought, oh, that guy's from Russia. He's from Minnesota. <laughs> uh, his interviews on YouTube are amazing because he's very well-spoken. It's completely unnerving to hear him speak in, like, a almost a Canadian accent when he's his whole life he was the the bad. I'm always amazed at how well wrestlers remember anything. Well, Nikita they Koloff. They remember which city they're in. You're like, how? Every arena looks the same. Andrea yeah. and concussed in all of them. But he, yeah, I mean, because of the head trauma. I mean, that probably Roddy had some. Yeah. Which is why he'd be talking about Nikita Koloff. And then he'd, like, just branch in the middle to a, a Fritz von Erich story. And they're like, you just got him back when he, you know, he does that. Because, you know, the interviews lately, have, we struggle because he's talking to Jim Cornette. And, you know, he, he thinks he's talking to, uh, you know, the the Grand Wizard, the manager guy he used to be friends with. So uh, we did it for about five months, maybe. And it was awesome. Like, I know the fans hated me on it because they were like, who's this fucking bozo? I would have said the same thing. Uh, but Yeah, but you're not going to not show up. Oh, no. They, I mean, I knew uh, the fans were like, this guy's not funny. We We're just... Tuning in to hear Rodney, Rodney, uh, Rod, maybe I have Alzheimer's, Roddy, mm -hmm. uh, but Roddy wanted me there. Like he said, I won't do it without you anymore. Uh, so we became, uh, you know, pretty good friends. And uh, he was actually like Brody, supposed to come on my podcast the uh, the day he passed. Yeah. So and unlike Brody, I left Brody a message, uh, and I hope his sister hears this because. I thought Brody was flaking on me, so I literally called up Brody and said, you fucking jerk, you could at least call me if you're not showing up. And he was, he was, he was probably, you know, already deceased. So. Oh, you know, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, but uh, I'm the known in the podcasting community as the podcast crypt keeper because I've had five guests die. Five? Wait, yeah. who are the other three? Uh, Brody, Roddy, uh, my friend Lori Donna, who was murdered by her husband. Uh, there's two more. I'm, I'm blanking. There was, it's five. Is, uh, so, uh, hey, Jeff Ross, you want to do my podcast? <laughs> Skakel, Los Angeles legend, most nationally known in my mind as the guy that beat Jimmy Carr on Roast Battle on Comedy Central, but he's also Barry Jelly if you watch The Jellies on HBO Max. He has his own podcast, Inappropriate Earl. If you were into the wrestling stuff we were talking about, he's got a great episode where he interviews uh, Eric Bischoff. Huge, huge name in the wrestling world. And then he also, if you are just a comedian listening and you're unaware, he interviewed Tommy Morris twice, back-to-back -back episodes. He invited him back the next week to talk for another hour and a half. And uh, Tommy Morris was the comedy store booker that didn't pass Earl. He was the one that, uh, and he talks about what he was looking for while passing comics at the comedy store and, why, and the ones that he was not passing. And he uh, was in charge of the comedy store for, I want to say, a better part of a decade. So that was a very fascinating interview to hear, especially since when I moved to town. Tommy Morris was the guy we were all trying to kiss his butt, and then all of a sudden he got fired, and all of a sudden no one wanted to kiss his butt. And Earl was like, let's talk about it. Uh, fascinating. 
Uh, next week, we have Sally Mullins, another Los Angeles staple. I think she's been doing comedy for 20 years. I'll ask her. The interview's not until tomorrow, so I don't remember. You know, I don't know yet what we're going to talk about. She's an adult film star and stand-up comic, which, by the way, there's always an adult film star in comedy that comes and goes. It seems like they all last about a year. Uh, Sylvia Sage has been around for a couple years, so she's outlasted some of that. And Sally Mullins has been in it for 20 years. And Sally Mullins is a joke machine. So it was like I had my first like real conversation with her. I've known her for a decade. My first real conversation with her. She was hosting a show I was on the other night. Uh, let me brag a little bit. I was headlining, so I felt like I could. Um, you know, like, and we were just joking back and forth. And I was like, "Nah, you're really fun to talk to. You should do my podcast." She was like, "You should do mine." So, by all, so by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm also on her podcast that we're also recording tomorrow. So I don't know what we're talking about yet, but. There's that to go find if you want to hear me get interviewed by Sally or if not, you know, next week or right now, if you're listening more than just right now, you know, like if you're listening in the future, Sally Mullins next. As always, I am at Aaron M. Marsh on everything. Uh, You can find me. I still have pins, stickers, and I have an open mic every Monday, Uh, extra minute open mic. I'm going to be heading to it in a little bit here. Oh, and starting this week, Kenobi's on. It's back. So my Star Wars podcast is back. Uh, we haven't uploaded yet because they haven't put out the first two episodes yet. But boom. In the future, you know, like so next week I'll be promoting a little bit of that. I'm excited for what Kenobi brings. I think that's pretty much covered all the bases. The, the episode went long, so I'm just going to wrap this up. Guys, thank you very much for listening and thank you for putting up with me. Mm-hmm.